Hello, and welcome back to Their Own Words. History from those who lived it. My name is Danny. And I'm Ava. Today we're going to be talking about Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling was a famous author, writer, and journalist. His notable works include Jungle Book, If, Gunga Dean, The White Man's Burden, and The Man Who Would Be King. Kipling was born in December of 1865 in India during the time of the Raj. The Raj was a time of British imperialist rule in India. Kipling went to boarding school in Devon before moving back to India after failing to get a scholarship for university. He got his start writing short stories for the Gazette, a local newspaper in Lahore where he lived in his early 20s and where his father was a professor. He was known as the poet of the empire. He wrote many encouraging pamphlets, poems, and speeches praising the British war effort during the First World War. He was convinced that Germany had turned to barbaric behavior following what was then known as the Rape of Belgium and after sinking the civilian ship RMS Lusitania. His enthusiasm waned, however, when his own son was killed in France, and his most famous line from the war is now perhaps from a poem entitled Epitaph of the War, which reads, If any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. So a brief aside here that many of our most famous Victorians actually lived into the 20th century, in Kipling's case, well into the 20th century. And thus, Victorians really shaped what the first part of that century would also look like. He died in 1936, and by the time of his death was an internationally revered writer. He was a Nobel Prize winner and had traveled much of the world. His wife was American, and so he lived there for a while, but they also holidayed in South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, and of course, India, while his primary residence was in England. In recent years, Kipling's work has come under some level of scrutiny because of its zealous promotion of imperialist values, and so he remains a controversial figure today. We're going to read to you some excerpts from Kipling's works, uh, including some of those controversial ones, but we'll also include an excerpt from a letter he wrote whilst traveling through Canada on the Canadian Pacific Railway in the late 1880s. So to begin, we are going to read you an excerpt from one of the stories of The Jungle Book. The Jungle Book was a collection of short stories, and I'm going to read to you from the story Mowgli's Brothers. So it begins with a poem. Now ran the kite brings home the night that mang the bat sets free. The herds are shut in byre and hut, for loose till dawn are we. This is the hour of pride and power, talon and tush and claw. Oh, hear the call, good hunting all, that keeps the jungle law. It was seven o'clock of a very warm evening in the Sioni Hills when Father Wolf woke up from his day's rest, scratched himself, yawned, and spread out his paws, one after the other, to get rid of the sleepy feeling in their tips. Mother Wolf lay with her big grey nose dropped across her four tumbling, squealing cubs, and the moon shone into the mouth of the cave where they all lived. Ah, said Father Wolf, it is time to hunt again. He was going to spring downhill when a little shadow with a bushy tail crossed the threshold and whined. Good luck go with you, O chief of the wolves, and good luck and strong white teeth go with noble children, that they may never forget the hungry in this world. So right at the beginning, we get a really great example of Kipling's meter. He often writes this way. Most of his poems are written in these kind of rhyming couplets and conform to that same pattern. Then we get a sense of the really vivid pictures Kipling was so talented at creating in his works. Even that first part that you read, Ava, reads very similarly, I think, to modern novels, Mm -hmm. which is a lot different from Dickens. So we see sort of an evolution of the novel and a type of writing here. 
It was the jackal, Tabaki, the dish licker. And the wolves of India despise Tabaki because he runs about making mischief and telling tales and eating rags and pieces of leather from the village rubbish heaps. But they are afraid of him too because Tabaki, more than anyone else in the jungle, is apt to go mad. And then he forgets that he was ever afraid of anyone and runs through the forest biting everything in his way. Even the tiger runs and hides when little Tabaki goes mad. For madness is the most disgraceful thing that can overtake a wild creature. We call it hydrophobia, but they call it Diwani, the madness, and run. Enter then and look, said Father Wolf stiffly, but there is no food here. For a wolf, no, said Tabaki, but for so mean a person as myself, a dry bone is a good feast. Who are we, the Gidurlog, to pick and choose? He scuttled to the back of the cave, where he found the bone of a buck with some meat on it, and sat cracking the end merrily. All thanks for this good meal, he said, licking his lips. How beautiful are the noble children, how large are their eyes, and so young too. Indeed, indeed, I might have remembered the children of kings are men from the beginning. Now Tabaki knew as well as anyone else that there is nothing so unlucky as to compliment children to their faces. It pleased him to see mother and father wolf look uncomfortable. Tabaki sat still, rejoicing in the mischief that he had made, and then he said spitefully, Shere Khan, the big one, has shifted his hunting grounds. He will hunt among these hills for the next moon, so he has told me. Shere Khan was the tiger who lived near the Wanganga River, twenty miles away. He has no right, Father Wolf began angrily. By the law of the jungle, he has no right to change his quarters without due warning. He will frighten every head of game within ten miles, and I, I have to kill for two these days. His mother did not call him Lungri, the lame one, for nothing, said Mother Wolf quietly. He has been lame in one foot from his birth. That is why he has only killed cattle. Now the villagers of the Wanganga are angry with him, and he has come here to make our villagers angry. They will scour the jungle for him when he is far away, and we and our children must run when the grass is set alight. Indeed, we are very grateful to Shere Khan. Shall I tell him of your gratitude? said Tabaki. Out, snapped Father Wolf. Out and hunt with thy master. Thou hast done enough harm for one night. I go, said Tabaki quietly. Ye can hear Shere Khan below in the thickets. I might have saved myself the message. Father Wolf listened, and below in the valley that ran down to the little river, he heard the dry, angry, snarling, sing-song whine of a tiger who has caught nothing and does not care if all the jungle knows it. The fool, said Father Wolf, to begin a night's work with that noise. Does he think that our buck are like his fat Wanganga bullocks? So, like you mentioned, Ava, he was a controversial figure for a lot of his writing, but he was so famous because of his ability to create such entertaining stories. I think most people listening to this are familiar with The Jungle Book, maybe the Disney version, uh, and the tale of Shere Khan. And Kipling's ability to create vivid characters is what made him so famous and is the reason for his Nobel Prize and so many people cherishing his stories over the decades. Yeah, even people who would have been staunch critics of him and perhaps his opinions couldn't help but admire his gift of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So the setting of the Jungle Book would have been heavily influenced, obviously, by Kipling's own childhood living in India, as the Jungle Book takes place in the jungles of India. Within the, the saga of the Jungle Book, there are a lot of themes of law and freedom. He had this love for order and law and social hierarchy, but also in the same breath, he had this 
appreciation for the freedom to move between worlds, which we see with Mowgli straddling kind of the worlds between the jungle and the village. And so this is perhaps influenced by Kipling's own experience as someone who lived between two worlds, who lived between England and India. It's been said he struggled with his identity throughout his adult life, having essentially grown up half in India and half in England. So we can see the influence of this in his writing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay, so the next thing I would like to read is the excerpt from his travels on the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway. And then after that, we'll get into some of his poetry. Okay, so Kipling is on the Canadian Pacific Railway. He's just come from Japan to Vancouver. And from Vancouver, he's taking the train right across the country. This is 1889. It reads, Now, from the province of Alberta to Brooklyn, USA, maybe 3,000 miles. A great stretch of that distance is as new as the day before yesterday, and strewn with townships in every stage of growth, from the city of one round house, two log huts, and a Chinese camp somewhere in the foothills of the Selkirks, to Winnipeg, with her league-long main street and her warring newspapers. Just at present, there is a new epidemic of politics in Manitoba, that's the province in which Winnipeg sits, and brass bands and notices of committee meetings are splashed about the towns. By reason of their closeness to the stages, they have caught the contagion of foul-mouthedness, and accusations of bribery, corruption, and evil living are many. It is sweet to find a little baby city, with only three men in it who can handle type, cursing and swearing across the illimitable levels for all the world, as though it were a grown-up Christian centre. All the new towns have their own wants to consider, and the first of these is a railway. If the town is on a line already, then a new line to tap the backcountry, but at all costs, a line. For this, it will sell its corrupted soul, and then be very indignant because the railway before which it has groveled rides roughshod all over the place. Each new town believes itself to be a possible Winnipeg until the glamour of the thing is a little worn off, and the local paper sliding down the pole of pride with the hind legs in despair says defiantly, quote, At least a veterinary surgeon in a drugstore would meet with encouragement in our midst, and it is a fact that five new buildings have been erected in our midst since the spring. From a distance, nothing is easier than to smile at this sort of thing. But he must have a cool head who can keep his pulse level when just such a wildcat town, ten houses, two churches, and a line of rails, gets on the boom. The reader at home says, yes, but it's all a lie. It may be, but did men lie about Denver, Leadville, Ballarat, Broken Hill, Portland, or Winnipeg 20 years ago? Or Adelaide, when town lots went begging within the memory of middle-aged men? Did they lie about Vancouver six years since, or Creed not twenty months gone? Hardly. And it is just this knowledge that leads the passerby to give ear to the wildest statements of the wildest towns. Anything is possible, especially among the Rockies, where the minerals lie over and above the mining towns, the centers of ranching country, and the supply towns to the farming districts. There are literally scores upon scores of lakelets in the hills, buried in woods now, that before twenty years are run will be crowded with summer resorts. You in England have no idea what summering means in the United States, and less of the amount of money that is spent on this yearly holiday. People have no more than just begun to discover the place called Banff Hot Springs, two days west of Winnipeg. In a little time, they will know half a dozen spots, not a day's ride from Montreal, and it is along that line that money will be made. In those days, too, wheat will be grown for the English market 400 miles north of the present fields on the west side, and British Columbia perhaps the loveliest land in the world next to New Zealand, 
will have her own line of 6,000-ton steamers to Australia, and the British investor will no longer throw away his money on Helicat South American republics or give it as a hostage to the states. He will keep it in the family, as a wise man should. Then the towns that are today the only names in the wilderness, yes, and some of those places marked on the map as Hudson's Bay ports, will be cities. Because, but it is hopeless to make people understand that actually and indeed we do possess an empire of which Canada is only one portion, an empire which is not bounded by election returns on the North and Eastburn riots and the South, an empire that has not yet been scratched. So we see in Kipling's letter here his obvious admiration for the empire. He's talking about keeping investments in the family, meaning that Englishmen should invest in Canada and its future potential for growth. And it's kind of interesting just to get a look at these scrappy young towns, which Winnipeg and Calgary and Vancouver all were in the 1880s. Very small, new towns budding on the prairie. Okay, so the next excerpt we're going to read is from a poem, one of Kipling's most famous poems, titled The White Man's Burden. The White Man's Burden was a poem encouraging the American people to essentially take colonial control of the Philippines and its people. I'm only going to read three verses because the poem is quite long. It's about seven or eight verses. So I'll read the first verse and then one of the middle verses and then the last verse. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need, to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace, fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. And when your goal is nearest, the end for others sought, watch sloth and heathen folly bring all your hopes to naught. Take up the white man's burden, have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy ungrudged praise, comes now to search your manhood through all the thankless years, cold-edged with dear-bought wisdom, the judgment of your peers. So within this poem, there's a very clear imperialist strain. It's very much about going forth and spreading colonial control. Yeah, it's like a new gospel to be spread across the world. Mm -hmm. And I think Kipling believes his culture to be obviously superior to the other cultures of the world. There are things that the British and the Americans for that matter should impart to the cultures they encounter that, that he firmly believes. In some aspects, maybe he's seen some of the positive influences that Britain has had on India, having grown up there. And so this maybe influences his ideas in this poem. I think it's important that we draw a distinction between the general populace of the time who commonly would have held these imperialist values and people like King Leopold of the Congo who took these imperialist values to the extreme and exploited and tortured the people that were subject to him. So I think we do need to draw a distinction between those kinds of people. So Kipling and other people of the time would have, yes, thought themselves to be superior to other cultures. So they would have had misguided notions of their own cultural superiority. However, for a large portion of these people, and I, I think maybe Kipling too, it was more of 
a sense of the superiority of their civilization in terms of law and order, education, healthcare, infrastructure. And so these were things that they saw as their duty to bring to other cultures. So it's very prominent here in the, the poem that they view it, again, as the title suggests, as a burden. It's something that they are tasked with bringing to these other places. So, for example, in the first verse, he says, to serve your captive's need. So it's very clear that from his perspective, the peoples that are going to be colonized need this infrastructure, this law and order, this way of living that was characteristic of British society at the time. Kipling views as this is a need of these, these people. They need law and order because they are living these lawless lives. And he says, he uses the verb serve. So he views it, and a lot of imperialists at the time viewed what they were doing in the colonies as serving people, as bettering their lives, as doing something for the greater common good of everyone. And this is not to excuse imperialist actions or misguided notions, but it's important that we understand the view that these people had at the time. Not everyone was a King Leopold of the Congo who wanted to who dehumanized and wanted to torture their subjects. For personal gain. For personal gain, yeah. The last line of the white man's burden, like the first verse of the white man's burden, is half devil and half child, which is very harsh. Again, you can see here that he would have seen, oh, there's some good in these people. They are children, and children are innocent, right? So he would have thought perhaps of these people in these colonies, because they don't have the kind of civilization that people in England do, as children, as innocent, as not knowing any better. But he also calls them half-devil because they are living in this lawlessness. They have no order, according to Kipling. They live wildly. Yeah, there's chaos that he's seeing. And this is the very paternalistic tone that most empires and imperialists get accused of. Uh, having. <clears throat> but it was just a product of the Victorian era. Most people thought this way. They thought it was their mission and their duty to bring not only the gospel, the gospel of Christ to the world, but this new gospel of civilization. They really saw themselves as providers of the world. So he even says in the second verse that I read to you, fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. So they view them, viewed themselves, however misguided that was, as coming over with these things that were going to help these people and cure them of their sickness and fill full the mouth of famine. They viewed these people as not living lives that were productive or that were abundant. And they wanted to be able to provide this and thought that their way of civilization, the British Empire's way of civilization, was the superior way. It should also be noted that in this poem, Kipling talks about the struggles of the white man's burden and that it is a thankless task, that bringing civilization to these colonies is a thankless task. He says, the easy ungrudged praise and through all the thankless years. So he wants to warn the people, his audience, that should they embark upon the white man's burden, it will not be easy and it will not be 
rewarding in the sense that they will not get praise from it. He views it, and many people viewed it, as a great deal of sacrifice in order to bring civilization to these quote-unquote uncivilized places. It's interesting that you mentioned, or that he uses those lines, feed full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. John A. Macdonald, Canada's first prime minister, this would have been 20 years before Kipling wrote this, actually embodies this very idea in that he ran programs to try and keep First Nations peoples from starving, who were suffering from famine amidst the killing off of the buffalo, their traditional food sources, and also running immunization programs uh, for smallpox. So again, this Victorian ideal of civilizing people, bringing them schools, building railways, Mm -hmm. trying to bring them healthcare. Obviously, it came with all sorts of baggage, and it there was oppression and repression, but at the same time, they really felt this was correct. And so all the Victorians we've spoken about who explored the world, whether they were doing missions or they were doing nursing work or they were doing biology, this is the worldview that they inhabited. This is what is so important about history. And if, if you're going to be a scholar of history or of English, you have to understand that people who lived in history were flawed individuals. They had both good things about them and bad things about them. They lived in complex cultural and societal times. And we have to understand them in the historical context within which they lived. That doesn't mean we can't judge people, quote unquote. We can say, you know what? This is not how we view the world. We don't believe this to be right. But it does mean we shouldn't put on 21st century goggles and assume that people in the past should have behaved the way we do today. That is, I think, ignorant. Mm -hmm. From a literary perspective and historical, I have also often thought when reading this poem, when he says, and bid the sickness cease, that it might not even be talking about physical health, uh, perhaps spiritual health as well, because this idea of bringing Christianity to these people, they viewed them as sick in terms of Mm -hmm. spiritually sick. So I think that is also part of here we you mentioned that a little bit earlier and i thought that was just an important thing to mention that it might not even just be talking about physical health but spiritual health and this idea of like you said bringing the gospel bringing christianity to these quote unquote uncivilized places yeah a societal sickness in Mm -hmm. a sense not just disease yeah Okay, I want to make a note quickly on the meter again. If you listen to Ava reading The White Man's Burden, you'll notice tons of similarities to the poem that prefaces The Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. This is so characteristic of Kipling's writing. I love it. I think it's what made him so popular because he was easy to memorize and easy to read. It's very easy to read. It comes very, the rhythm comes very naturally as you read it. Yep. Any concluding thoughts on Kipling? I think that what we need to understand and perhaps take away from this episode is that it's possible for people to be both and. That people cannot, as we talked about, just be painted one way, black and white. It, people are complex. All people are complex, whether historical figures or contemporary figures. It's possible that Reggie Kipling could be this incredible storyteller with this great passion for writing and maybe a desire to serve the broader global community but also be a person with misguided imperialist views it's possible and not just possible it's prevalent it's common that people are complex people have good things about them and bad things about them 
Absolutely. Well put. Well, with that, that wraps up our episode on Rudyard Kipling. We hope you enjoyed listening to some of his work. And thank you so much, as always, for listening to our podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.